Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of and the art of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Do we need to know every technique before we begin to write? The answer is no, but let me expand on that. There's no evidence Charles Dickens ever took a writing class or read a book about writing fiction. Were there such things back then? When he was 16 years old, Dickens taught himself a shorthand from a book called Bacigraphy by Thomas Gurney. In 1832, he became a parliamentary reporter for newspapers. He sat in the House of Commons and took shorthand notes of the debates. I suspect being a parliamentary reporter taught him to to write fast and to concentrate, and then he turned those notes into articles for the newspapers. But who told Charles Dickens he could write fiction? Who told him he had the ability to create a world for readers, that he could write classics still read with pleasure 200 years later? How did he learn to do it? Uh, Maybe it was inside him. Consider reading, if you haven't, his novel, Great Expectations. It's my favorite novel. You'll sink into Dickens' world. He He was a master. But where did he learn to do that? I don't know. Maybe you are like he probably was. You are naturally gifted. Uh, at storytelling, and you innately know how to tell a big story. Uh, The best storyteller I've ever come across was a good friend of my brother John. Uh, Larry was a hunter and a fisherman, and he could tell stories about his mishaps and adventures out in the field that were fascinating and hilarious. He told stories on himself. He had a natural storytelling talent, just like Will Rogers. Maybe you are like them. And being a natural writer, maybe you know good writing techniques. You just know them somehow, probably from picking them up from your pleasure reading. Uh, When reading for fun, you likely didn't know you were learning how to write, but you were. You're a natural writer, and, and you're fortunate. But for most of us, and Even for natural writers, there's a benefit from learning specific fiction writing techniques. Uh, That benefit is, of course, we can learn to write, and if we're a natural writer, we can get better. Here's an example. You know because you've listened to these episodes, and maybe because you've read books on writing, or uh, maybe because you've read Elmore Leonard's famous list of writing techniques, Or maybe you just know because you're a good writer. You know that the sentence, I despise mutton, he said grimly, is a bad sentence. Among good writers such as Elmore Leonard, it's a laughably bad sentence because a dialogue tag, which is here, he said, should almost never be modified with an adverb. Uh, The adverb in I despise politics, he said grimly, is the word grimly. Even natural writers might not know this technique and so may mar a wonderful story and otherwise wonderful writing with a poor technique. But once we have learned the technique, uh, this technique, avoiding dialogue tag modifiers, it's easy to avoid them and our writing is instantly better. 
I despise mutton, uh, period, end quote. He frowned and turned away. Uh, This is more accomplished writing. Even natural writers might not know this technique. This is the 83rd episode on writing fiction. Do we need to have memorized everything I've talked about, all the techniques, every one of them, in all 83 episodes? Uh, Maybe not. But we are getting better with everything we learn. Who knows, maybe we are born writers and we can polish our talent by learning more. Or we might not be a born writer, such as Charles Dickens likely was, but we can get better. And by learning one technique after another, we can ratchet ourselves up into being good writers, even great writers. I don't think I'm a natural writer. I had to learn. And I am learning, along with you. I believe I'm getting more skilled at the craft of writing fiction as I create these podcasts. I hope you are too, as you listen to them. We're getting better. What a nice and rewarding thought. I would like to talk about using action and dialogue rather than interior monologue. Avoiding interior monologue is such a strong technique, and avoiding interior monologue is so easy to do once we know we should do so, that I want to return to the subject. Interior monologue is a fancy way of saying thinking. The writing teacher and novelist Jack Bickham offers this definition of a scene. This is Jack Bickham. It's a segment of story action written moment by moment, without summary, presented on stage in the story now. It is not something that goes on inside a character's head. It is physical. It could be put on the theater stage and acted out. Uh, That's Jack Bickham, and the key to his definition of a scene is that it can be put on a stage and acted out. It doesn't take place in a character's mind. So when the character does a lot of thinking, things slow. And thinking isn't cinematic. It can't be acted out on a stage. Most of the time, the reader can intuit what the character is thinking, uh, say a character's dread and nervousness, without the character having to think of it. Sometimes interior monologue is necessary, but too much of it and the novel's forward progress stalls. Uh, And as I've mentioned before, it's important for us writers, particularly, to avoid interior monologue that is called (laughs) navel-gazing. Isn't that a great term, navel-gazing? This is where a character is thinking about how she feels about things. Uh, Few things are as ruinous to a novel as endless navel-gazing. Uh, So when a a character does a lot of thinking, uh, as opposed to acting and speaking, things slow, and things aren't cinematic. But what if we want to know, we want the reader to know what a character is thinking? We can show the reader, with action and dialogue, what the character's thoughts are, rather than entering the character's mind for interior monologue. Here's uh, an example of interior monologue. Being turned away had been painful for Jennifer. Mike had dumped her, and she hadn't gotten over it. Uh, 
Anger mixed with humiliation. He had been so hurtful. But maybe she was beginning to heal. Maybe she was getting over it. So long, jerk. These are important thoughts. Uh, Maybe critical to our story. But they are inside Jennifer's mind, and there's nothing to watch. Even though this is a strong plot point, It's not presented in an interesting way. It's interior monologue. How about this instead? She walked to the fireplace mantel and lifted Mike's framed portrait. She stared at it, and her mouth turned down, and she shook her head, and her breath caught in her throat. She inhaled hugely, smashed the frame on an andiron, glass shards dropping, and then she tossed the rest into the fireplace. As she walked toward the door, a small smile formed on her face, and she said, So long, jerk. Isn't that better? We get to see her face as it changes expression and, and see her smash the framed portrait. What a strong image. We see her toss it into the fireplace, and we see her smile and speak at the end. We have, the reader has things to watch and listen to, and the reader learns what she's thinking without visiting her mind. What if the reader can't detect everything you, the writer, want to get across uh, that Jennifer is thinking? Well, first, the reader will probably understand, and and there's no need to sharpen and sharpen the emotional pencil with interior monologue. And second, it's okay to add a sentence of interior monologue, maybe something like, it had been a month and she still hurt, uh, where she still hurt is interior monologue, but a sentence or two is fine. What we want to avoid is a long paragraph of interior monologue. Uh, Let's do another. Here is our character thinking. Smith was exhausted and the cold was beginning to affect him, making him want to return to the camp. But it was only three in the afternoon. This stream held little promise. He hadn't seen a single gold flake, and he was hungry. Smith was bitter with frustration. Well, that's all in Smith's head. These are important points in our story, but there's a more interesting way to present them. In action and dialogue, we should write something like this and listen to how the reader learns what Smith is thinking. Smith slumped back onto the creek bank and ran a hand down his face. His breath was steam and his hands trembled. He drew his coat tighter around himself, rose to his haunches and reached for the pan. A rim of mud and pebbles covered a fraction of the pan. He swirled it, then dipped out some of the mud. Nothing showed. A blank. He dumped the tailings into the creek. He rose to his feet and spun away the pan, and it flew until it it hit a tree and fell to the ground. He stared at the tent up on the hill under the fir tree, then cupped his hands around his mouth and called, I'm coming up. Get dinner ready. See how we learn all Smith is thinking without entering his mind? We, we see him move and we hear him speak, and it's, it's more interesting than reading about his thinking. We learn he's hungry and cold and he isn't finding gold and that he's frustrated. 
once again, we don't need to worry about not getting all his thoughts across right then or getting them across perfectly. The reader will know what's going on, and there'll be a chance later to sharpen things if we need to. And once again, if short interior monologue is needed to make things clear, fine, add a sentence or two amid the action and dialogue. But remember that there's almost always a way to show with action and dialogue what a character is thinking. Action and dialogue are almost always more interesting for the reader than a character thinking. This is so important, reducing interior monologue, that I'd like to do one more. Here is interior monologue. Alex knew she should never have volunteered for this mission. She was claustrophobic, something she'd hidden from her lieutenant. Small spaces frightened her, especially small dark spaces. She wanted out of this place. This is probably an important plot point in our story. It's an important way, it's, it's important that the reader know this uh, about her, about Alex. It's even sort of interesting as interior monologue, but we can do it so much better with action and dialogue that'll show the same thing. Here it is. Lieutenant, how long before the hatch opens? Alex said into her mic. Couple minutes, came from the headset. You okay? Yeah, sure. She closed her eyes. Couldn't be better. Her shoulders were squeezed between the lock's walls, and her knees were almost uh, almost up to her face. Her helmet pressed from all sides. Sweat, uh, sweat dripped down her back. She fought to keep her breath under control as that, as that was monitored on the bridge. She fiddled with the safety on the submachine gun. She pushed her legs against the lock's deck, but it didn't move, of course. She mouthed, I'm trapped, I'm trapped. Hurry up with the hatch. That's a nice moment in the story. She's on a critical mission and she is frightened because the airlock is so small and is pressing in on on her and she's claustrophobic. In this version, we see action and we hear her words. At least we hear hear her mouth words. Uh, The interior monologue version pales next to this action version. Yet we learn the same things about Alex. What if we can't think of a way to show our characters' thoughts with action and dialogue right now? It might not be the time to do so. Can we save it for later? Most novels have interior monologue. The key is to not let it run away with our story. If if you need to use interior monologue and you can't think of a way to show the thoughts with action and dialogue, and if you can't save it for later, one, make sure the interior monologue is important, and two, keep it short. How do other writers write? How do they compare their daily rituals compare with ours? Somerset Maugham, the British novelist and playwright, Uh, including of human bondage and the moon and sixpence, lived to be 92 years old, and he published 78 books. In his book, Daily Rituals, How Artists Work, Mason Curry writes of Somerset Mom. uh, This is Mason Curry, quote, He wrote for three or four hours every morning, setting himself a daily requirement of 1,000 to 1,500 words, 
He would get a start on the day's work before he even sat down at his desk, thinking of the first two sentences he wanted to write while soaking in the bath. Then, once at work, there was little to distract him. Mom believed that it was impossible to write while looking at a view, so his desk always faced a blank wall. When he wrapped up his morning's work at about noon, Mom often felt impatient to begin again. Quote, when you are writing, when you are creating a character, it's with you constantly. You are preoccupied with it. It's alive. That's Somerset Mom quoted by Mason Curry. And here is Mason Curry regarding Truman Capote. Uh, this is Capote. I am a completely horizontal author. Mason Curry says, Capote told the Paris Review in 1957, I can't think unless I'm lying down, either in bed or stretched out on a couch, and with a cigarette and coffee handy. I've got to be puffing and sipping. As the afternoon wears on, I shift from coffee to mint tea to sherry to martinis. That's Truman Capote. Here's Mason Curry. Capote typically wrote for four hours during the day, then revised his work in the evenings or the next morning, eventually creating two longhand versions in pencil before typing up a final copy. Even the typing was done in bed, with the typewriter balanced on his knees. Uh, Mason Curry continues, Writing in bed was the least of Capote's superstitions. He couldn't allow three cigarette butts in the same ashtray at once, and if he was a guest at someone's house, he would stuff the butts in his pocket rather than overfill the tray. He couldn't begin or end anything on a Friday, and he compulsively added numbers in his head, refusing to dial a telephone number or accept a hotel room if the digits made a number he, uh, a sum he considered unlikely. Uh, quote, it's endless, the things I can't and won't, he said, but I derive some curious comfort from obeying these primitive concepts. Let's do one more from Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals. In 1850, Herman Melville wrote a letter to a friend uh, shortly after he and his family had moved to a farm in the Berkshire, Berkshire's region of Massachusetts. Uh, Mason Curry said he was 31 years old and he raised corn, turnips, potatoes, and pumpkins. Uh, Melville wrote a letter to a friend, and this is Herman Melville. I rise at eight, thereabouts, and go to my barn, say good morning to the horse, and give him his breakfast. It goes to my heart to give him a cold one, but it can't be helped. Then pay a visit to my cow, cut up a pumpkin or two for her, and stand by to see her eat it, for it's a pleasant sight. To see a cow <laughs> move her jaws. She does it so mildly and with such a sanctity. My own breakfast over, I go to my work, uh, my workroom, and I light a fire, then spread out my manuscripts on the table, take one business squint at it, fall to a will. At two and a half p.m., I hear a 
preconcert, a preconcerted knock at my door, which by request continues till I rise and go to the door, which serves to wean me effectively from my writing, however interested I may be. My friends, the horse and cow, now demand their dinner, and I go and I give it, I give it to them. My own dinner over, I rig my sleigh, and with my mother or sisters start off for the villages. If it be a literary world day, great is the satisfaction thereof. Uh, uh, let me interject. Melville, I think, is talking... Uh, uh, by his phrase, a literary world day, when he gets together an occasional gathering of writers and painters, which he enjoyed in town. Uh, here is Melville again. My evenings I spend in a sort of mesmeric state in my room, not being able to read, only now and then skimming over some large printed book. Uh, that's Herman Melville. Mason Curry, in his book Daily Rituals, said that, says that Melville was a few months into Moby Dick at the time. Uh, and this is Melville. I have a sort of sea feeling here in the country now that the ground is all covered with snow. I look out my windows in the morning when I rise as I would out the porthole of a ship in the Atlantic. My room seems a ship's cabin, and at night... When I wake up and hear the wind shrieking, I almost fancy there is too much sail on the house, and I had better go to the roof and rig in the chimney. That's Herman Melville. It's nice to know that the masterpiece Moby Dick, uh, some judge it to be America's greatest novel, didn't just spring from the ground fully formed. Uh, a great writer, Herman Melville, had to work and work at it, and he had to write between visits to his horse and cow. For me, that's fun to know. I received uh, a nice email from a listener, uh, Jim in Texas, uh, in response to how I learned to write. And Jim writes, As a nine-year-old living in a small Texas town with no one within four years of my age in the surrounding ten miles, I spent a lot of time playing outside alone with my imagination. Much of that was reliving scenes I watched from the Lone Ranger or Tarzan television shows. As a gift, I received the Tarzan of the Apes book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I believe this was on my tenth birthday, and it was game over after that. The Tarzan novels led to the Barsoom, Princess of Mars, novels. These led to many, many other thrilling adventure stories and authors after that. Then my sophomore English teacher, Mrs. Jones, God bless her soul, was inspired by a creative writing paper I turned in and gave me a copy of The Hobbit. Another world of wonder opened up to me after that. That's a message from Jim a Texan. Isn't that how it should work? When we are young, we get snared by a story and then more stories, and we find our path because we want to write such stories, to create magic for readers. I really liked hearing this from Jim. If you'd like to let me know about your path to writing, please send me an email at jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. And by the way, I may be the only person you know who has visited Muleshoe, Texas.
Out my western-looking window in my home office in Seattle is Puget Sound here in Washington State. When I look out my window from my desk, I always see, uh, well, first I see my cat Jack, who has the magical ability uh, of always being in my line of sight. But I also see vessels passing north and south on Puget Sound to, to and from the Seattle and Tacoma docks sometimes on the way to Vancouver or Long Beach or Alaska, uh, sometimes on the way to Korea or Japan. And these include cruise ships, container ships, uh, bulk carriers, vehicle carriers, uh, commercial fishing boats called factory trawlers, pleasure yachts, once in a while a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, and, and what a thrill it is to see them, even a Navy submarine on the surface. And my favorite, tugboats. Some things in our world make us smile automatically. Uh, tugboats are one of those things for me. They're always chugging along, often pulling a barge, working hard, and their, their lines are so pleasing. They're even cute. They are low and squat with big prows and low aft decks. They are the little boats that could. I grin when I spot a tugboat. My wife, Patty, has the same effect. Uh, effect. I grin when I see her. Uh, maybe I shouldn't compare her to a tugboat. I hope you have something in your life that makes you automatically smile. We have visited Somerset Mom and Truman Capote and Herman Melville, and now we've come to the end of our episode. I'm glad you were here for it. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer, and I hope you will keep tapping those keys. <laughs>